0: Well, please see your Bibles, and we'll turn again tonight to Exodus chapter 20.
1: Again, of course, it is the scene that's presented to us regarding Mount Sinai and God coming down and giving the law to, to Moses. So Exodus chapter 20, reading together from the verse number 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness, where God was. Again, let me just remind you of of the context of our present series of studies. We are trying, with the Lord's help, to get a biblical grasp of what it means to fear the Lord. Again, in these opening messages, the desire of my heart has been to overview the subject, and then I intend to come back and circle back over some of the things in some more detail. But so far, we've examined the fact that in the Bible and in human experience, there are two types of fear. and there is the fear of terror, uh, and then there's also the fear of a fervent, a reverent, a filial fear, the fear of respect, the fear of sons. Now the believer is not unmindful or unforgetful, or unaware of the fear of terror. We saw that. There's an understanding that even though we enjoy the blessing of no condemnation, yet we don't cast aside all remembrance of the nature of the terror of God, Uh, again, that is due to those who live a life out of Christ. But predominantly, the believer is impacted by this attitude of reverent fear. Their lives are governed and controlled by the honor and the veneration of the Lord, a desire for the Lord's pleasure. And we see, of course, here in Exodus chapter 20, the people, first of all, uh, they encounter this sense of terror. They're confronted with the majesty and the authority of God, and they seek to stand afar off. You see, that helps us to define the nature of this fear of terror. It is terror that causes people to flee from the Lord. Their desire and their concern in this terror is that God will cause them harm but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Now, Moses' words in verse number 20, when he says, fear not, certainly imply that their responses, both physically and verbally, indicate this Fear of terror. He's telling them they should they should not stay afar off. They they should not fear God speaking to them. That's the wrong sort of fear because it is God's will to prove and to test them and to lead them into communion with Himself. But however, though they're told in verse twenty to fear not, Moses continues to really reveal to us God's purpose in their lives. That God's fear would be before their faces that they would not sin. And so it is, I believe, very clear that God's will is that we live in the fear of God and that the fear of God so operates in our lives that we do not sin. You see, that clause, that ye sin not, really helps us with our definition of the fear of God. And so we saw last time John Murray defines it this way, it is the controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God he understands that the sense of God's majesty and holiness has a controlling influence. Now, he continues, it is also a profound reverence. So, you have these things of uh, really a reverence, which in turn also has a controlling impact upon our lives. If I could put it this way, the fear of God is a reverent awe of God uh, that in turn provokes holiness. But we saw last time, then, as we tried to develop this further, we saw the foundations of this attitude, Uh, and this attitude of the fear of God is founded upon certain convictions, things that we hold to be true in the very core of our hearts, these convictions that are produced by the Spirit of God in the newborn heart. Uh, We have convictions regarding the goodness of God's law. Uh, we, we appreciate God's law is good. Uh, we have a convictions regarding the all-seeing holiness of God. We're not to curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but to fear the Lord or God. The grace of God. We also have that conviction. Thirdly, we see the goodness of God's law, the all-seeing holiness of God, and the grace of God. If God marks an icarice, we sang the psalm, uh, then who can stand but there is forgiveness with thee? that thou mayest be feared. the Bible itself makes it clear that forgiveness is foundational to a proper fear of God. And that if there's no forgiveness, there must just be the terror of God. But when there is forgiveness, then there there can be this filial fear, this reverent fear of God. But not only does forgiveness, you like open up the possibility of that, forgiveness itself and understanding forgiveness is really a reflection of certain convictions that themselves will produce the fear of God. Forgiveness presupposes God's mercy and God's holiness, not one without the other, both together. The forgiveness that we enjoy is in light of God's holiness, and it's enjoyed because of God's mercy. We recognize God's just law or guilt. We recognize God's hatred of sin. We feel conviction, and we plead for God to show us mercy. And hence, we see this matter of forgiveness produces a proper fear for God, a a love for God, and a thankfulness for the grace that we enjoy, but a forgiveness, of course, that also hates sin. And so these are the foundational matters, and there's probably more than that. I'm just trying to, uh, again, begin to get some basic concepts, the goodness of God's law, uh, the holiness of God that is all-seeing, and the grace of God in the gospel. But regarding this attitude, I want to continue tonight by thinking about the features of this attitude, the features of the attitude. And these are really drawn from, again, verse number 20 of this uh, portion in Exodus 20 where again Moses says that God's purpose for the people is that his fear would be before your faces, that ye sin not. There are two features I want to highlight uh, from that section. First of all, it is the feature that the fear of God is constant. Constant. He says to them that his fear may be before your faces. Uh, It's just a vivid Hebraism to say that the fear of God should be constantly in our presence, in our presence. You think of the brothers, when they come to Egypt, and they're feeling the weight of their sin, Jacob has died, and his brethren, Joseph's brethren, also went and fell down before his face— this idea of before the face of someone in the Hebrew context was to be in their presence face to face, before their face. And so here we're seeing an attitude of heart, but he's, he's using picture language. We understand the significance of this. It is that the, the fear of God would always be in our presence, always be in our mind. It is a, a constant awareness of the fear of God, ever remembering God. Now, it's worth noting at this point that this involves you and your responsibility. Now, we understand fear, the proper fear of God, is a result of God's sovereign grace in salvation. We cannot fear God properly unless we've got a newborn heart. We saw that in in, in Jeremiah 32. But however, like all spiritual graces, it's also our responsibility— and the responsibility to fear God in part involves the necessity of keeping it always before our eyes, before our faces, always in our remembrance. Uh, like what I'm saying basically is that there should be no part of our day when we're not consciously living in the fear of God. I, again, I make the point very plainly there should be no part of the day when we're not consciously living in the fear of God. We we shouldn't drift along in our daily vocations, forgetting the fact that we are existing in the fear of God. It's our duty to remember this, to keep the face of God, the fear of God, before us at all times. It is constant. But secondly, and more fully, it is also controlling. And you see the language here. this fear fear may be for your faces that ye sin not. It has a a controlling influence. Again, I remind you of John Murray's definition, the fear of God is the controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God. Now, some thoughts and some convictions in our lives have really very little real bearing in our conduct— there are certain things that we believe and, and hold firm, but they, they don't really impact our lives or our conduct in any way. But the fear of God controls everything. The fear of God controls absolutely everything. We could ask the question well, how will reverence for God impact every second of our existence? Well, again, there are these foundational principles God's law is good, He is holy sin is terrible. I am forgiven. These are things that are continually before our face, and those realities, they impact our lives every second of every day. What I'm really talking about is living in the fear of God is living in the presence of God, but consciously living in the presence of God. He says it's impossible not to live in God's presence, But it is possible to live in God's presence and not think about that. Not be conscious in your awareness of living in God's presence. But a conscious awareness of living in God's presence will indeed govern all actions. It will govern all words we use and indeed govern every thought and every emotion that we encounter. But especially, it will govern our private actions and private thoughts Yes, it will govern all actions, but it will particularly govern our actions when no one is watching, but the Lord is. Now, here I really wrestled with this this afternoon and how to present this to you again. Great care is needed when you talk about living consciously in the presence of the Lord. I have encountered some unbelievers who reject Christianity outright because they dislike such a concept of God. They have an idea of God as an all-seeing, disapproving father figure, a God who is really the worst form of control and dictatorship, harsh, censorious, just waiting for you to trip up and make your mistake and then come down upon you with all his wrath. Almost creating you in such a way that you're made to feel, and in your failure, he he gets delight in showing his wrath upon your failures. Some of that thinking, again, clearly arises from some biblical concepts. But they've got a caricature of God that, that is not right and proper and biblical. But some Christians, having heard language of such a rejection, have in turn rejected the concept of the all-seeing eye of God in response. They say, God is all grace, and therefore we should not have to live in this thought of his all-seeing eye in terms of that controlling our lives. We, we shouldn't think of God in that way. His fear and our fear of God should not be a controlling influence in terms of producing righteousness. God always favors us. Therefore, this concept of the abiding presence of God and not having controlling influence is disregarded. But of course, such is unwise. Living consciously in the fear of God is first and foremost a biblical concept. The wise man tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. The wise man writing wisdom is giving us instruction that would govern our conduct. That's the whole point of wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And so he gives us this instruction. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He is omnipresent, all-seeing. Therefore, that ought to impact whether you perform the evil or the good. It's not just a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact to produce wise living. But also, turn across to the Psalm 139, where again we see, we see the psalmist, David, if you like, at the, at the very height of his spirituality, clearly walking close with God at the point of the psalm. He's the psalmist that, again, he ends the psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. But as he opens up again his treatment in the psalm, he says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but thou but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too high for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? And so he continues. He is not resenting or disapproving of the ever-abiding presence of God and the all-seeing eye of God. He's receiving tremendous comfort from that reality. Oh, yes, if you're walking with the devil and you're away from the Lord, you should be terrified that God sees your every down sitting and your uprising. But for the child of God, it's a portion of tremendous comfort that God has beset me behind and before and even just in all security also put his hand above us. It's a wonderful thing to live in the abiding presence of God. But that biblical reality must be properly understood. You see, clearly, as what I said regarding rejection of this, it is subject to misunderstanding. But living in the presence of God, keeping the fear of God before our faces, remembers, again, certain gospel truths. It remembers that God loves me. That God sent his Son to die that I might live. This is the God that sees and beholds the evil and the good. This is the God who's entered into covenant, a relationship with me through Christ Jesus, that has given his Spirit to indwell me. This is the God who knows what is for my good. This is the God who knows me better than I know myself, and who is infallible in giving words of wisdom to direct and govern my conduct— This is the God who in love has shown me what is good in his word. He does not know what's good and leaves it for my imagination. Rather, he knows what's good and says, this is what is for your good. This is what we must remember. We remember the fact that I love the Lord and desire to be in fellowship with him. Because of the gospel, I've come to an intimate relationship with the Lord, and I would desire to walk with him every second of every day. God is not a cruel, harsh dictator who sees and is waiting for us to slip up, but rather is that kind and loving, perfectly good, wise, and righteous heavenly Father. That is the God who sees all things. You see, as a child— Perhaps you have done something in your childhood, and you uh, had that action many, many years ago for some, perhaps, and you had that action, and your hope was, I hope my parents don't find out, because they'd be so hurt. Not so much they'd be so angry, but that they'd be so hurt that their love for you was treated in such a way that you despised their love and your actions, and you knew you would, that you would hurt them in your actions. You see, that's a that's a good and commendable motive to guard against sin. How much more living in God's presence? You see, when we're faced with a choice to do or not to do, or faced with the choice to say or not to say, keeping the fear of God before our faces is a a great help to the believer keeping themselves from sin. That's what the text says. It's telling us that the fear of God before our faces, that we would sin not. And so this fear of God is constant, but it's also a controlling attitude in the Christian life. Which then third leads to the the fruit of this attitude. Again, the foundations are these doctrinal convictions. The features, it's a constant, controlling attitude. But what are the fruit of this attitude? What does it produce? Well, positively and primarily, it produces obedience. Obedience. Now, that's not the only thing. I'm going to suggest here at the close, just very briefly, that it also has the fruit of humility. But it produces obedience. Clearly, still, as the primary outcome in several of the texts we've looked at. Again, Exodus 20, his fear that ye sin not. Leviticus 19, don't curse the deaf, don't trip up the blind, but fear God. In other words, it's the fear of God that is uh, enabling you not to do those things which are in violation to God's law. Or Jeremiah 32, I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Obedience. This controlling attitude is intended to provoke obedience to God's law. No one is watching. No one can see me. But I'll still give thanks for the meal, because God says, receive things with thanksgiving. No one is watching, but I'll control my tongue when I'm speaking with my friend, my close friend. No one is watching, but I'll turn off the TV, the smartphone, the iPad, the computer, whatever it might be. No one is watching, but I'll do do my work consistently and reliably and diligently, no matter who doesn't see. This, of course, is the spirit of Joseph. He was given that open-door potential for secret sin, offered the opportunity to sin in private, and yet, of course, understood, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? That's what it is to live in the continual abiding presence of God. Again, the Reformed Baptist pastor, Al Martin, put it this way, the first step into any sin, when there is a definite inducement to sin, is the eradication of our sense of the immediate presence of God. So you're a believer. You know the law of God. You have a biblically informed conscience, and you're produced or you're presented with an opportunity to sin. The first thing you must do is deny the immediate presence of God. You've got to put the fact that God's there out of your mind. He continues, think about it. Many of the sins we commit would be prevented or stopped by simply the presence of another human being. If you're having a spat with your wife, what happens when a fellow human being, not even necessarily a Christian, comes to the door? The presence of another person is enough to check your words, and suddenly you become very sweet. Or you could be cheating at school and think that nobody sees you. And as soon as a teacher stands over your shoulder, however, you stop. Or let me add one. You're 100 miles an hour down the turnpike, and then you see the police officer in the far window. And suddenly your speed reduces significantly. Why? Because of the presence of another person. Martin says this, What effect would it have on us if we had an all-pervasive sense of the presence of God. Surely it's the case that a proper understanding of the fear of God produces obedience. A conviction, as Brown said, a conviction that His favor is the greatest of all blessings and its, its approval of the greatest of all evils. Obedience. Humility. You see, fear is not only this controlling principle, it is also an attitude of profound reverence. And reverence, in turn, will lead to humility. Because the fear of God, it is founded upon a knowledge of God and self. When you come to fear God, you've you've come to know your own person, your your own sinfulness, your own need for mercy, and you've also come to know the holiness and justice of God and his majesty. Like the people of God in Exodus chapter 20, they were confronted with God's majesty and his authority, and they feared. And so, they're to replace that fear with a proper biblical fear of reverence, but it comes from a sense of humility. And so, really, in summary, in fear we humbly obey. And a proud spirit in the child of God, a proud spirit in the church of God, generally comes at least in part from a lack of godly fear. So, how does this definition of the fear of God impact our praying? Just as in closing, if we see the fear of God in this way, well, what does it do for our praying? Well, surely it provokes a sense of caution. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and I upon the earth, and therefore let thy words be few. Now, it's not meant to hinder public praying, but it's meant to govern how we pray in public, that we are cautious as to what we pray about. It is not for a second telling you not to pray, but when you do pray, that you're cautious regarding your words, living in the fear of God. And yet, with that caution, there comes a determination. You see, to, to fear God is to keep his commandments, and it is God's will that we come to him in prayer. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, and if you just seem to come short of it. And in the same context of living in the fear of God, he says to them in Hebrews 10, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, to, to live in the fear of God and not to pray is to live consciously in disobedience in the presence of God. You see, in private, we understand that God sees in secret therefore, though no one watches, I will pray. That's Matthew 6. In public, God sees our hearts, therefore we'll pray in faith and in sincerity. I'm just using this as an example, really, in practical terms, that this fear of God is indeed a controlling influence in our lives every moment of every day, not only in the workplace, in the family, but also in the house of God.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.